More than a decade ago, Kanhu left the homeland of the Kamayura, an indigenous tribe with about 600 members on the southern edge of the Brazilian Amazon. She was seven at the time and never returned. Kanhu, who has progressive muscular dystrophy, told the Brazilian lawmakers in 2018, if I had remained there, I would certainly be dead now. That's because her community would likely have killed her just as for generations it has killed other children born with disabilities. The Kamayura are among a handful of indigenous peoples in Brazil known to engage in infanticide and the selective killing of older children. Those targeted include the disabled, the children of single mothers, and twins, whom some tribes, including the Kamayura, regard as bad omens. Kanhu's father, Makau, told a reporter of a 12-year-old boy from his father's generation whom the tribe buried alive because he, quote, wanted to be a woman. The evangelical missionaries who helped Kanhu and her family move to Brasilia, the capital of Brazil, have since spearheaded a media and lobbying campaign to crack down on these child killings. And their efforts have culminated in a controversial bill aimed at eradicating the practice, which won overwhelming approval in 2015 vote uh, by the Chamber of Deputies, that's the lower um, house of Brazil's National Congress, and then was eventually passed by the federal Senate, the upper house of the Congress. The law passed, though no one's real sure if it's being enforced. And there are many, both in Brazil and in the United States, maybe our friends and neighbors, who would say that that practice is barbaric and it needs to be stopped with the full force of the law. And there are others in Brazil and in the United States, maybe even our friends and neighbors, who would say that that practice is just part of their culture and we should just let them be. But I have a feeling that if you switch the issue around, those sides might flip, wouldn't they? It just kind of depends on what we're talking about. And it seems to me the fact that there's actually debate over that matter, both in Brazil and in America, is proof that we probably need to spend some time talking about the final lens in our lenses series, the culture lens. So thank you so much for being here today. I'm grateful for those of you uh, here in the room who are, are joining us in person. If you haven't yet, take a second, fill out your connection card. For those of you watching online, thanks for logging in. Uh, we'd love it if you were here with us. We understand if you need to watch online, but especially if you're watching on a, like, you know, the YouTube app on your smart TV, grab a different device, fill out your connection card. Uh, we want to do our best to disciple you digitally. And so uh, the only way to do that is for you to stay engaged with us, prayer requests and things like that. So uh, take a second and do that if you haven't uh, done that today. I hope some of y'all can stick around or come back uh, for our uh, lenses q and A. Uh, going to kind of put the preacher in the hot seat. And uh, from about 1230, we'll start until about 2. Um, or, or you run out of questions or I run out of the ability to make stuff up. So um, we'll... Uh, <laughs> We'll do that this afternoon. Grateful for uh, those of you who are planning on doing that. Thank you. Also, if, um, if you're a baker, if you like to uh, put the food together, uh, Pie Day is coming up. Uh, March 14th, 3.14 uh, is Pie Day. And it's something that Chapel Rock has done over the last few years to uh, express love and, and um, 
just thankfulness uh, for all of those involved in teaching. Ministry has been hard over the last two years, but it's a cakewalk compared to what teachers have had to go through. And so uh, we, it's just opportunity. So you can hit that table in the lobby, pick up a, a box and, and make a homemade uh, pie that we will distribute uh, on March 14th um, to various teachers and schools here in the area. So thank you for doing that. For the last eight weeks, we've been exploring what it means to see our world the way Jesus sees it. And, and I've been trying to help you form or, or further refine your Christian worldview. And man, it's been a journey. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. It's been a lot of work. <laughs> and, and so I'm grateful that uh, Fred is going to step up and do a, a sermon series for the next three weeks called Fight Like Jesus. He's going to take a look at the temptations of Jesus in Luke 4 and how we, what we can learn from Jesus about fighting temptation. So you're not going to want to miss that. Uh, I'm grateful that he's doing that because, y'all, I'm tired. <laughs> uh, I am ready um, to just the reading alone has been, uh, been substantive. But I, here's the thing, though. I've been really strengthened in my faith because of this. I, I, I've grown just personally, and anyone who's ever taught anything knows that. You always learn more preparing to teach than you do sitting you know, in, in the audience. And so uh, I've just really been challenged in my faith. Uh, I've been, I feel like more equipped to live like Jesus in a world that's, that's volatile and uncertain and complex and ambiguous. Uh, and so I hope that this has been a blessing uh, to you too. Today, we're going to wrap it up by talking about the idea of culture. Now, it's probably, we're going to use that word a lot. It'd probably be helpful to define it. There are a lot of definitions floating around out there, uh, be, partly because it's a little bit hard to define. Uh, one of the ones I thought was really good was by Sinclair Ferguson and J.I. Packer. Uh, they wrote that culture is a way of thinking and behavior shaped by a substantial or shared by a substantial social grouping, which gives them identity in relation to others. All right. So it's kind of the, it's the way that we think and behave together, right? Uh, here's another one uh, from E.Y. Sung in the New Dictionary of Theology. He writes, culture refers to a particular way of life whether of a people, a period, or a group, and can be examined as a signifying system through which a social order is communicated, reproduced, experienced, and explored. So it's, culture is the, the thoughts and behavior patterns of a group of people in a particular place and time, but it's also the way that those thoughts and behavior patterns get replicated. You know, it, it's, it's the way that the, the society persists. And most of us here in the room are products of Western culture, Western civilization, which according to Dr. Samuel Gregg, began in the Mediterranean basin. He's talking about the ancient Greco-Roman culture from which it spread primarily into Europe and North America. And that's where it, it has kind of lived for the last several couple hundred or a couple thousand years. Um, you know, North America, Europe, particularly Western Europe. And these are regions that remain relatively free and democratic during the Cold War. And if you want to see a conflict between Western culture and other worldviews, I don't know, watch the news. Because that's exactly what's going on in Ukraine. Ukraine's people have kind of started to drift more toward Western thinking, Western culture, Western democracy. The president of Russia doesn't like that. For a long time, and most of you would remember this, in the USSR, Ukraine was a client state of Russia. If you want to know, if you want to know why, man, this is relevant today, right? With what's happened this week, this it's a culture 
clash. And there are a lot of other factors, of course, too. Dr. Gregg says that one of the main facets of Western civilization is the emphasis on personal freedom that's derived from the commitment to reasoned inquiry in the search of truth. And so much, so much of, you know, the inheritance of uh, Western culture comes from the Christian faith being the dominant ideology in the West, Western Europe, North America, for the last 2,000 years. A big part of the reason why we are the way we are is because of the influence of Christianity. In the broadest terms, though, God is present in all human cultures. His discernible presence is visible in varying degrees. In some cultures, we see God strongly represented. In others, not so much. Then there are certainly things in Western culture that don't line up with who God is. Our materialism, our stuffitis, it's not God. Our rugged individualism, I, I, I'm going to do it my way. You realize that the, the only song that's going to play on the intercom in hell is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way, right? That's not God. It's not from him, but it sure is us. And what that means is that God is infinitely above and beyond culture. And so where human culture aligns with and furthers the will and purposes of God, it's good. It leads to greater flourishing. Where human culture is in opposition to the will and purposes of God, it just leads to misery and pain. And so part of Jesus' goal in coming to earth and participating in human culture. Remember, he was part of a particular people at a particular place in a particular time. <laughs> he participated in it. And part of that goal was to transform human culture to be more like heaven culture. Now, the word culture never appears in the Bible in any major English translation. But the idea of culture is all over it. And I want to give you just a really brief survey of that this morning. In fact, Scripture clearly indicates that the broad diversity of human culture is directly the result of God's action in history. Look with me at Genesis 11. This is right after the flood. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, that's Babylonia area, and settled there. They said to each other, come. Let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and, star and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go. To, by the way, who's he talking to? <laughs> There's another proof for the Trinity right there. Let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, did you see that? <laughs> One language and a common speech. A name for ourselves. 
one people. There was a point in human history where the human race was monocultural. And they wanted to keep it that way. <laughs> God intentionally ends that. The diverse world cultures that we now enjoy, especially here in Wayne Township with like, what, like 70 languages spoken? People, skin colors all over the rainbow, right? That's awesome. The, that result is, is directly because God intervened in human history. He made that happen. The diversity that we enjoy here in Indianapolis is the direct result of God intervening in human history. It was God's idea. Which is interesting because a lot of the conflict that the Hebrews had with the nations that surrounded them was the, also the result of a divinely appointed cultural difference, right? Circumcision, not. You know? Kosher, bacon. Right? Like, there's differences that God designed. In fact, the idea of culture is very much present in the background when the prophet Daniel explains Nebuchadnezzar's dream about this great statue in, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 39 through 45. Daniel's talking about all these cultures that last for, for hundreds of years, ultimately superseded by the church, which really leads us then to kind of fast forwarding to the end of time, however long that is, <laughs> And we read in Revelation 21, verse 23, look at this. John is describing the new Jerusalem and he writes, the city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb, it's Jesus, is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, what we see at the very end of the story that this book tells is culture redeemed. Can you imagine just for a second what that is going to be like? the best thing from every culture that has ever had anybody in it respond to the gospel is going to be present in heaven. Just think about that for a second. Can you imagine what the music is going to be like? Bach and Beethoven writing our songs, right? Performed by the London Philharmonic. But it's an American symphony, right? So there's some punk kid from Portland on the drums, and a guitar player from Mali, right? And the bass player from Brazil. It's going to be awesome. The food is going to rock. That buffet is one you don't want to miss. But that's culture perfected. That's culture totally united in the person and work of Jesus, indwelt and resurrected by the Holy Spirit and purged of all the things that we now allow to divide us. That's Jesus' culture. And it's the best. The Lausanne Covenant, which was written back in 1974, is an important statement of evangelical commitments on a wide range of issues, and, and it declares about culture, because man is God's creature, some of his culture is rich in beauty and goodness. Because he has fallen, all of it is tainted with sin, and some of it is demonic. 
If you ever had feeling ornery and wanted to start a fight on a university campus, all you need to do is walk up to a group of university students and yell, some culture is better than others, and then run. Because that's like throwing a lit road flare into a fireworks factory. Right? But here's the thing. That is exactly what scripture teaches. That's the big idea this morning. Culture is God's idea. And as such, he has a purpose he wants it to fulfill and has tasked the church to do the work he will one day complete. Culture is God's idea. He wants to do something with it. And he has a vision of it, of what it can be in his head. He's going to bring that to fruition. But in the meantime, we got work to do. Clearly, we're not there yet, all right? Let me read you another quote. It starts this way. Christians are in an awkward intermediate stage in Western culture. Having once been culturally established, they are not yet clearly disestablished. This makes liberalism, and by that they mean theological liberalism, attractive, since it keeps people vaguely related to the church. Through translation, we attempt to show that Christians are really interested in what interests the best in our culture. Now, here's the rest of the quote. I want to show you this. Look at this. We translate Christian eschatological hopes into Marxist revolutionary ones, or we translate salvation into self-fulfillment. Our bishops speak out on important issues, showing society that the church cares about the same things society cares about, look at this, and in the same way. We keep people interested in the church even though they no longer worship its God. Yeah, all God's people said, ouch. You know when that was written? That appeared in the Christian Century magazine January 28th, 1987. I was 10. Sounds like it was written yesterday. I mean, that could have been on Facebook this week. Clearly, this is an issue and has been for a while. So are we going to fix it the next 15 minutes? No. No, not a chance. Besides, Revelation tells us ultimately only God can do that. But there was one time when Jesus was teaching his disciples that he seemed to lay out a plan to teach them how to use this lens. Jesus gave his disciples a method, a a means to use this culture lens. He told his disciples how to create Jesus culture. Look at this with me in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people, put, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So what is Jesus telling us about how to create Jesus culture? Well, I think what we need to do is grab our final lens. We'll take a look at this this week. If you want to know what the final lens, the culture lens looks like, I think it looks like a window. Your house 
has lenses. This is the lens of your house, right? You need these to see out. And if there's enough light in your house, others can see in. And in a way, our ability to see out of our ideological house and use the culture lens is a little bit like a window, right? When you're at home, you can't help (laughs) but use these to observe the culture of your neighborhood. Listen, there's no such thing as an ah-cultural perspective. It doesn't exist. That's probably a fiction of modernity. And what that means is that Christians should use their lens the same way Jesus does. And what that means that we need to do is two things. Here's the first one. Clean your windows. (laughs) Some of you are like, I know it's on the list. We're going to do it in a few weeks when it warms up. Okay, Not literally, I mean maybe literally, but metaphorically, clean your windows. Here's what I mean. It's important, I think, for us to distinguish. I'm going to see if I can do that without it falling. There we go. It's important for us to distinguish between and kind of disentangle what belongs to Western culture, Western civilization, and what belongs to Christianity. Okay? There's a lot of overlap. Like I said before, much of Western civilization kind of inherits a lot from Christianity. There's a lot of overlap, but it's not one-to-one. It's not exclusive. And I want to talk for a second about how to do this, how to to clean your windows, how to kind of disentangle these two things. I also want to be clear. uh, There's two things I'm not doing. First of all, I'm not taking a cheap shot at Western culture. I'm a product of it, all right? So I'm actually kind of biased toward it. (laughs) I think it's, generally speaking, a good thing. The other thing I'm not doing is I'm not taking a, a cheap shot or trying to put down Eastern culture or, or the global South, you know, Africa and, and South America. I'm not doing that here, okay? I, I've got experience with this one, so I'm capable to talk about this, all right? But what I want to try to do is, is to disentangle these two things. Like I said, I'm a product of Western culture. I think it's pretty great, right? And, and so does Dr. Samuel Gregg in his book, Reason, Faith, and the Struggle for Western Civilization. Each week we've been recommending a couple books. Here's the first one. Um, Dr. Greg is absolutely brilliant. Um, it's a short book, but it's, it's packed. And um, one of the observations, he's very pro-Western culture, by the way. Most of this book is saying, hey, we need to, there's a lot that we need to preserve in Western culture. But one of the best observations he makes is about this idea of cleaning our windows and disentangling Western culture and Christianity. Listen to what he says in the book. He says, the West has been the source of ideas and movements that contradict both reason and key Jewish and Christian teachings. The ideologies that inflicted the mass slaughters of the 20th century, he's talking about Hitler, he's talking about Stalin, okay, did not originate in Asia or Africa. The beliefs underlying communism and Nazism were developed and expounded by people who would not have thought of themselves as anything but Western. What he does, and it's absolutely brilliant, what he does is, I mean, he's very much praising Western culture, Western civilization, but he does not equate it with Christianity. And that's instructive for us. 
Because after 20 plus years of ministry, I've noticed that American Christians really struggle with this in ways that our brothers and sisters in, in Asia and in Africa and South America don't seem to. Maybe they've got other issues that I'm unaware of. That's certainly possible. I, I've only lived here, traveled a little bit, but only ever lived here. And, you know, so they would probably need to do this too, but I'm speaking to a group of people in America today. <laughs> and so I, I think it's important that we, we clean our windows. So you might be asking, well, Casey, how do I know if my windows are dirty? Well, let me ask you this question. Have you ever run across a Bible verse and thought, God can't possibly mean that now, right? If you've ever thought that, your windows are dirty. If you've ever thought that we should dismiss something that the Bible calls a sin because, quote, well, that's their culture, your windows are dirty. Tim Keller, in his sermon, Literalism, Isn't the Bible Historically Unreliable and Regressive?, said something that I think it helps us see the distinction that we're talking about and why it's so important. He said many of us read a certain passage of Scripture. And remember, he, Tim Keller preaches in Manhattan, New York City, okay? So th that's his audience. He said many of us read a certain passage of Scripture and, and say, that's so regressive, so offensive. But we ought to entertain the idea that maybe we feel that way because our particular culture, in our particular culture, that text is a problem, in other cultures, that passage might not come across as regressive or offensive. He gives a couple examples about passages that relate to forgiveness and passages that relate to sexual expression. And then he says this, let me ask you a question. If you're offended by something in the Bible, why should your cultural sensibilities trump everybody else's? Mm. Why should we get rid of the Bible because it offends your culture, he goes on to say. Let's do a thought experiment for a second. If the Bible really was the revelation of God and therefore wasn't the product of any one culture, wouldn't it contradict every culture at some point? Therefore, it really, if it really is from God, wouldn't it have to offend your cultural sensibilities at some point? Boy, I think Brother Keller is right. We've got to clean our windows. In this passage in Matthew 5, Jesus talks about us being like salt, now, in the ancient world, salt was used to do two things primarily. It, it, it wasn't as much about, you know, seasoning food. Salt was used to clean, and it was used to preserve. Salt will, will clean something out, and, and it'll preserve meat. We can, you know, pack it in a barrel full of salt, and it will keep longer. It won't go bad. Right. So I think what, what we need, church, right now is some Holy Spirit Windex to clean our windows. All right, so here's the question that I want to fill up your, your Holy Spirit Windex bottle, okay? Ask this question. Does whatever, fill in the blank, preserve something good that comes from God or clean something evil from the enemy? And you just ask this about the stuff in, in your life. Does this thing, whatever, this movie, this uh, book that I'm reading, this... Um, you know, curriculum at my kid's school, whatever. Does this preserve something good from God or clean something evil from the enemy? And if the answer to that is yes, it's probably Jesus culture. It's a good thing. If the answer to that is no, um, then we should probably move away from that. Now, that does not mean <laughs> that we, we move away from people 
and we separate ourselves from a sinful world. Cleaning your windows does not mean that you just separate your life away from sinful people. The church has tried that a few times over the last 2,000 years, and it never leads to something good. It never leads to greater evangelistic effectiveness. It never leads to more people becoming disciples. What we need is clean windows, not you know, our own little housing division over here apart from everybody else. Okay, so the first thing you've got to do is clean your windows. Here's the second thing you need to do in using this culture lens. You have to shine your light. You've got to shine your light. Now, when I hold this up, I mean, I, I've got a spotlight aiming right through this thing right now, right? You, you've, got, you've got to shine your light. You've got to be able to shine light through this. How many of you have ever been driving somewhere uh, unfamiliar at night looking for the house of a friend or a place you've never been? Anybody ever done that, right? You're driving at night. You're looking, you've never been there before. Right, you got Google Maps going, and even that is is making it's not making it clear. Right, I don't know about you. Do this, you turn down the radio so you can see better. Right, like, uh, and you go around the corner, and there it is. Right, all the lights are on. There's cars in the driveway, people coming in and out, and it's lit up. And oh, good, okay. Right, you're able to find that place because there's light coming out of the windows. Jesus says that the church, that's what the church should be like to our culture. He says you can't hide a house up on a hill, especially not in the first century world without street lights. <laughs> if there's lights on in that house and it's on top of the hill, they cannot help but be seen. He tells us, let your light shine. We've got to, now you have to remember the context of this passage, right? This comes right after the Beatitudes. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. And it really forms the transition passage from the Beatitudes where Jesus describes the values of the kingdom people into the, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's how to live like that. This is that transitional point. And Jesus is saying, clean your windows and let your light shine. As D.A. Carson points out, the kingdom norms, that's the Beatitudes, verse 3 through 12, so work out in the lives of the kingdom's heirs, that's us, Jesus' disciples, as to produce the kingdom witness, that's verse 13 through 16 that we just read a little bit ago. He goes on to add that Jesus warns against a withdrawal from the world that does not lead others to glorify the Father in heaven. He's saying don't just pull back because that won't help people glorify God. And then D.A. Carson quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who says, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself, listen, has ceased to follow him. Church, now is not the time to hide. Jesus is telling his church today, let your light shine. Clean your windows, shine your light. You see, a major part of the way we use the culture lens once we've cleaned our windows is to leave the lights on. We live in a culture that is literally stumbling around in a moral darkness. I said at the beginning of this series that we're living amidst the ruins of Christendom. And I think a major part of the confusion of our culture is that it has rejected the Christian worldview, but it does not understand that it is the intellectual inheritance of the Christian worldview that makes that rejection possible. 
And therefore, they are confused. They're in the dark. And so what we need to do, church, listen to me, is not argue louder. It's not take a cheap shot at their back when they're not looking. It's rather to let our light shine. It's the same thing that Peter said in 1 Peter 2.12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Listen, the way we shine our light is by living holy lives. And I cannot help but wonder if part of the church in the West's waning evangelistic effectiveness is because there is such a desperate need for us to renew our commitment to personal holiness and to prayer. And when we do that, we practice what seminary professor Dr. Makoto Fujimura calls culture care in his book of the same title. This is a wonderful book. It's kind of heady. Like he talks about some really deep stuff. But it will make you long for truth and beauty and goodness in your soul. In the book, he writes, culture care ultimately results in a generative cultural environment, open to questions of meaning, reaching beyond mere survival, inspiring people to meaningful action, and leading toward wholeness and harmony. It produces thriving cross-generational community. What Brother Fujimura means by the word generative is essentially life-giving, fruit-bearing. This is what Jesus calls us to, living such righteous lives that our churches and our homes generate light in a darkened world. Listen, church, we are not to adapt to culture. We are to create it. We create Jesus culture. And the early church grew not because they were necessarily better thinkers and writers than their Greco-Roman contemporaries, though many of them were. No, it didn't grow because they were better thinkers. It grew because they were better livers. They just lived better lives. Their light shined. In our house at 7603 Lindsay Drive in Chapel Hill is situated in such a way that as you come down Westmore Drive, you cannot help but look right in our front living room window. (laughs) The people who built the house wanted it that way. They showed up on the day they dug the foundation to make sure it was tilted right in the yard. It's true. You can't help it. You come down Westmore Drive, you're looking right in my front window. And it's, it's, it's a little bit weird and disconcerting, right, to have everybody in our neighborhood go, oh, look, the Scots are watching House Hunters, right? Like... And our, the way our, our dining room is situated, it, it's right by the patio door, and pretty much everybody on the west side of Brixham Court can be like, oh, look, the Scots are having pot roast for dinner. They can sit right there and they can be, be seen. And that lack of privacy might bother you, and honestly, it bothers us a few times, but I think God is using it as a parable for my family to learn what it means to clean our windows and let our light shine. Church, I think God is calling us as his body to create Jesus culture in our homes, in our church, and in our community so that we can reach them for the sake of the gospel.
That's what he's calling us to this morning. And all he's simply saying is, would you participate in my work with me? (laughs) Did you hear me? That's what he's telling you. Culture is God's idea. And as such, he has a purpose he wants it to fulfill and has tasked the church to do the work he will one day complete. You see, one day all of our cultural differences will be healed and united in Jesus, and then we will celebrate together and really understand each other. Until that day, God has work for us to do. So how are you going to respond? Well, maybe you need to join that work for the first time in baptism. Jesus entered into human culture. He became a human being, and he died on the cross in your place for your sin. And if you've never made a decision to follow him, you have an opportunity to do that now, to be baptized, to receive the Spirit, to be called into that work with him. Maybe you want a covenant to do that work with us here at Chapel Rock by placing your membership. Maybe you have a burden of prayer that's making that work a challenge. We're gonna sing a song together and you're invited to come forward if you have a decision to make public and you respond as God leads you. Let's stand together this morning and sing.